Um, we've been focused the last 10 weeks on a couple of dudes, Saul and David. And now as we get towards this season, this uh, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, I want to turn our attention to some very important women of the Bible. Uh, I want to focus this week and next week on some of the women who play this incredible part in the story of Jesus Christ. I want to be on a soapbox too for just a moment and share with you that the gospel and sharing the gospel is not just about guys. From the very beginning, God has raised up women who are called and equipped and capable of preaching and teaching and leading. And we as Wesleyans have a heritage in that. Did you know that the first woman ordained in the United States was ordained by a Wesleyan Methodist pastor named Luther Lee? The Women's Rights Convention that started the women's right to vote, the first convention was held at a Wesleyan Methodist church. We have a history in this. We believe that it is right and that it is good. And here's the truth. Every church believes that women can be in ministry. Every church believes that. Go look in a nursery or a Sunday school class or anything like that. You will see every church, I don't care what denomination, <laughs> believes that women can be in ministry. What we believe in the Wesleyan church and some of our brothers and sisters in the Nazarene church, Free Methodist church, Methodist church, uh, many other places, believe that women can be in ministry leadership. There's a, dis there's a distinction there and a difference there. Well, anyways... There are some stories in the New Testament of women who lead the way, and two of these stories occur during this week, between this Sunday and next Sunday, and I want to look at those today. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, or if you would grab one out of the pew, I'd love for you to take your finger and put one finger in Mark chapter 14, and the other finger in John. And as you look at your Gospels, you may have noticed this. They're the four, first four books of the New Testament are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. While Jesus' life and ministry lasted for years, nearly half of every Gospel is content from the triumphal entry to the resurrection of Jesus. Nearly half of every Gospel is this last week of Jesus' life, there is so much crammed in there. Even though his ministry lasted years, this huge lion's share of our Gospels is about is lifted straight from this last week of his life. So here we are, this Palm Sunday. And what we remember on Palm Sunday is that Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Jesus is riding on the colt of a donkey. He's coming humbly, not like a king exalted on a chariot or anything like that, but humbly on a donkey. And the people are celebrating and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it sets in motion this crazy time in Jesus' life. His last days are full of teaching and ministry and doing and traveling through Jerusalem and the area just outside of Jerusalem. There is so much there. And the story that I want to look at today happens between this Sunday and next Sunday. In this week, Jesus spends time in Jerusalem at the temple. It's Passover week for the Jewish people. And so it's important. That's how, that's why Easter moves around, because Passover moves around. It's based on a lunar calendar. Okay, so Easter floats around too. It follows the season of Passover. And so it's Passover season, and Jesus is there because any good Jewish person would be in Jerusalem 
for Passover. And as he's there, he's ministering. You know, he's going to the temple. He's flipping over tables. He's doing all kinds of stuff. But sometimes in the afternoons or evenings, he would head outside of Jerusalem to a little suburb, a little city nearby called Bethany. And Jesus would spend time there in Bethany too. And there in Bethany, Jesus had some dear friends who lived there whose names you might be familiar with. There's this guy named Lazarus who lives in Bethany. Lazarus is a guy who dies. And he's a dear friend of Jesus, and Jesus isn't close. But then you know the story. Jesus travels, takes his time, but travels back to Bethany. And Lazarus has been dead for some period of time. Lazarus has these sisters, Mary and Martha. Martha runs to Jesus and she said, you know, you weren't here, you could have saved uh, Lazarus, but even now I believe that you're capable. And Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb and it's this incredible story. And because of Lazarus, the Gospel of John tells us that many people come to believe in Jesus and trust in Him as the Son of God. Many people put their faith in Jesus. And there's this conspiracy that's starting to grow because of Jesus' influence by the Pharisees and other leaders to get rid of Jesus, but to also get rid of Lazarus because they're just too influential to the people around them. And so in this week, Jesus will head back to Bethany and he'll spend time there too with these friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And the passage that I want to give to you today from Mark chapter 14 Jesus is there in Bethany at the home of a person named Simon the leper. And he's having dinner there. And there's something of great faith that happens in this moment. Let's look at it. John chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. Let's fill God's house with God's word. We're going to read all the way through verse 11. Let's read together. We could maybe off the screen so that we're all reading the same thing. Okay, This is English Standard Version off the screen. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were now seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. There's three points that I want to cover today. You don't have them in your bulletin because this was all very last minute, okay? These are the three points. So you can write them down and fill in the blanks yourselves, the big blank. Point number one, a woman came. Point number two, 
they scolded her. And point number three, Jesus defended her. A woman came, they scolded her, and Jesus defended her. Let's break this story down into these three sections. We'll start with a woman came. In the Gospel of Mark, this woman is not named. What we just read, she's not given a name. She just said this woman came. The Gospel of John, that I've had you stick your other finger in if you've got your Bible, John chapter 12 sheds light on the story. Jesus is in Bethany. He's with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And the woman who does this thing, who anoints Jesus, is named there in Jesus' Gospel. This is Mary. And this act that Mary does is she brings this alabaster jar and breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head, comes as a surprise to everyone around. Nobody's expecting it. None of the other guests were expecting it. It's as though it is just something that has been on Mary's mind and she decides she is going to come and do this thing. She interrupts the dinner by breaking this expensive jar of perfume and she pours it on Jesus' head and we're told that the house fills with the smell of it. Now, I don't know much about alabaster. I can't get too deep into the nature of nard. I know that in the TV show, The Office, uh, Andy's character is called Nard Dog for some reason, but that's all I know about Nard. What I can tell you is about Stetson Cologne. And I can tell you that when you break, this would have been about 11 ounces, think about like a Coke can of perfume. It's pungent, right? It really has something to it. I can tell you about that. And what we're given here, the details that are to be important aren't what the perfume is made out of necessarily or that it was in an alabaster jar. But the detail that we're given and the surprise of the people is that what we are told is that this perfume is extremely expensive. It's extremely expensive. 300 denarii it's called. That's almost a year's wage. That word denarii is one uh, wages for one day's work. So this is almost an entire year's salary. I did a little bit of research to find what's the average salary. Now, some of you might be depressed or impressed. I don't know what this is going to be, but according to the research that I found, the average salary of a, a working adult in America, are you ready for this? Some of you, I'm worried. Is it going to be groaning or is it going to be okay? I'm doing okay. Uh, $46,000? Again, I don't know what everybody makes. That's what I found to be typically the average salary for an adult working. Imagine, I mean, let's reduce that a little bit. Let's say just $40,000, but just $40,000. That's still a lot of money. How many of you would be carrying around $40,000 in your purse? How many of you carry $40,000 in your wallet? <laughs> Jerry said he dropped his out in the entryway, he thinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, right. It's, it's not something usual. So what we see here is that this is something of value, and so it's something that Mary premeditated here. It's not something that she just did at the spur of the moment. She had to wrestle with this at some point to say, there is something of value that I have that I'm going to do this with. Now, why would she have this very expensive thing? There are two possible reasons that people give to explain why Mary would have had something so expensive. One reason is that it could have been intended to be a dowry or a payment for a bride price. Again, in this culture, in this system, if you were to be married, 
to somebody the, the, the bride's family would provide some additional funding to go towards the groom in that family. It was called the dowry. And so this might have been Mary's dowry. The other reason a family might have had some sort of perfume, some sort of alabaster jar with nard in it of this amount, was for the purposes of burial at some point. It was an investment not for this life, but for once this life had ended. It was a traditional custom to anoint the body for burial. It's something that was, that, that, that was common to do this thing and to leave that jar there in the tomb. Regardless of whether it's one or the other, the thing that we see here is that what she's doing is exceedingly generous. She's pouring away her future. Let's say this is her dowry. She's pouring away her future on the head of Jesus Christ. Without this thing, should this be her dowry, she is at the risk of not being socially acceptable anymore not being seen as valuable anymore to marriage to somebody else. She's taking this thing and she's putting it all on Jesus' head. And not just a little bit. You know, we might say, okay, you know, Jesus is valuable to us. Let me go get the anointing jar and I'll get a couple drops and we'll put a couple drops on his head. And, you know, that'll be enough to fill the room with the smell of this thing and I'll anoint it and that'll be a symbol of, of what I'm doing. But here, that's not what she's doing. She's not taking just a drop. She's breaking open the jar and pouring a Coke can worth of anointing on Jesus' head. Can you see it like flowing down through Jesus' hair and into his beard and just getting all over him? It is a lot. It seems strange and it seems unusual. But she's putting everything she has, staking it all on Jesus the Christ. Now, I want to contrast this to Judas for just a moment. I intentionally included that portion about Judas that comes next because there's a contrast here. Mary's question as she is thinking about Jesus is this. She's asking herself, what can I give him? That's at the heart of what Mary's trying to do here. The thing that she's wrestling with, what do I have that I can give Jesus? And as we contrast that to Judas, what we see is Judas is asking, what can he give me? What benefit is Jesus to me? Not what benefit am I to Jesus? It's an incredible contrast there. It is easy for us as believers to fall into Judas thinking. The kind of thinking that says, I need to get something from this. You hear it a lot with people after a Sunday morning service. You hear it a lot around a dinner table. Or when you ask somebody, how did they, how are things in church today? A lot of times the answer is, well, I didn't much out of it. Right, I didn't get much from it. Well, I went to church and I didn't get much from it. Well, you know what? Worshiping Jesus is not about getting something from it. The very word worship isn't about receiving. The word worship, when we worship Christ, it is about us giving something to Him. It's no wonder you didn't get anything out of it because you probably didn't put anything into it. And if you leave church frustrated each week because you're not getting anything out of it, 
My encouragement to you would just be to say, you're probably in the Judas line of thinking and you need to change that and start coming to give, not to receive. Start coming to give Jesus something of yourself. Give Him your voice. Give Him your hands. Give Him your amens. Wow, wow, this is incredible. (laughs) Give Him something. Give Him your service to one another towards being the person who's here to turn the lights on and open the doors, to being the person who's here to greet others with a smiling face. Give something in the name of Jesus. Don't ask that question, what can I get from him? Judas wanted something because he was attached to Jesus. Mary had the correct heart. She wanted to give not just something. She wanted to give everything because she was attached to Jesus. So the second point, they scolded her. They scolded her. In the Gospel of John, we read that this scolding is directed or led by Judas. He's the one who gets the ball rolling on scolding Mary. This woman has done something foolish here. If we were to break down the words that are used there, the literal thing that is said about Judas and the people around the table is that they snorted at her. (laughs) You've snorted at somebody before. I know you have. You know what that's about. (laughs) You know what that means. They snorted at her. They said, this is wasteful of her to do this thing. It's extravagant of her to do this thing. And Judas leads the line of thinking, but no doubt the others around the table were right there with him. Why would you be so foolish to do this? Here's the thing. They're not focused on what's most important. The people around the table, with the exception of Mary, they can't see what's in front of their own faces. They're trying to create some holier-than-thou thinking about how she could have done this thing better. Well, you know, you did something there, but you sure could have done better if you'd have sold it and given it to serve the poor. If you're still in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, would you take your Bibles and turn it back just a page or two to the end of chapter 12? I want to make a connection here, okay? Chapter 12 of Mark, we're still in this week from Jesus' triumphant entry. So this story that you're familiar with also happens in this window of time. It was probably either earlier that day or the day before Mary anointed Jesus' head that this story happens. I want you to look down at the bottom of the chapter at verse 41. Jesus is outside the temple and he's watching as people are coming in this Passover season and bringing their gifts and offerings. And here's what we read in verse 41. Read it with me. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Now stop here for a minute. Why? Oh boy, you gave it away, Curtis. It's okay. (laughs) Why has she done more than the people who wrote the big checks? 
Why? Because she gave everything she had. So remember, these disciples who are sitting around as they are witnessing another woman giving everything that she has can't make the connection. These guys can't. The lady should say amen here. This is the appropriate time. These guys cannot make the connection between what they saw either earlier that day or the day prior to what just happened here. They can't connect the dots. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you got it now. All right. She gave everything she had. Another woman, Mary, setting that example, giving everything she had. And they can't see it. And you want to know how I know they can't see it? They couldn't see it at Mary's through her actions. But there's another great example of them just not connecting the dots. You see, we, it, it, the Bible wasn't always broken down into chapters and verses. Did you know that? It used to just be like the Gospel of Matthew. So we sort of stop our thinking at the end of that chapter 12 or whatever we were just on. Well, the beginning of chapter 13 continues the story. So this thing just happened. Jesus just points this out to his disciples saying, look at this woman who gave these two small coins. She gave more than everyone else because she gave everything that she had. He just delivered this huge truth that it's about giving everything you have. And the disciples wander around with their mouths flopped open and what are they concerned with? Chapter 13, verse 1, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones. What a magnificent building. <laughs> they're, it's like they're tourists visiting the temple. Jesus has just pointed out this great thing to them, and they're like, wow, this is incredible. I mean, <laughs> the joke that gets told, if you go to, anybody been to New York City? You go to New York City, they say, you know how to spot a tourist in New York City? They got a sunburn on the roof of their mouth. From here. Wow. And these are the disciples who have been just delivered this great truth. And these guys are walking around. Look at that. Wow. They're, the dots are not connecting for these guys. Not a word made it through those thick skulls. They were condemning something that had gone completely over their heads. They didn't understand. They hadn't grasped it. And here again comes Mary giving everything that she has, throwing all her hopes, all her future on Jesus Christ. And they scolded her. But then Jesus defended her. The third point. Jesus defends her saying, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. More than that, this is a once-in-history opportunity. Every lifetime does not have Jesus to come die on the cross. Every lifetime doesn't get to experience that. Only one moment in history has this opportunity. Jesus says in verse 8 and 9, She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the Gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You see, it's a very generous thing that she has done. It's symbolic of her putting her whole self on Jesus. But it's also a timely gift. It was a generous gift, but it was also a timely gift. Now, I don't know how Mary had figured it out. 
But everybody else at the table, they were blind to it. Mary had figured out that Jesus was going to suffer and die. Jesus had been teaching about it with a bunch of guys around him. And the guys were like, no, Jesus, no, that'll never happen. It'll never be like that. Never like that, Jesus. We won't let that happen. Just calm down. You're talking about things you don't understand. But Mary, she'd heard. And she'd figured it out. Jesus was going to suffer and Jesus was going to die. And so here she comes. She gets it. She's a true disciple of Jesus. She got it when, 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 when Jesus is there and he's accessible to her, there's something she needs to do because this is the only chance and she's understanding that. And this isn't the first time that this woman has got it when others didn't. You remember the story of her earlier when Jesus is teaching there in her home and her sister is busy in the kitchen doing all the things and is like, Mary, get in here. We got lots to do. There's people to serve. We got to get this done. And Mary, He's at the feet of Jesus. Now, is it important to get the things done that need to be done? Absolutely it is. I don't want to detract from that at all. But she got something that may be more important than being sure that all the forks were aligned on the dinner table. She should be at the feet of Jesus, soaking in this opportunity that she had. She got something that others didn't get. She was right where she needed to be, learning, being formed at Jesus' feet. And now here she comes. Jesus has been talking about his death. The guys around him, they don't get it. They resisted. And here she walks in with this alabaster jar full of ointment and the unfolding. She, she has awareness of the unfolding redemption that's going on around her. Her eyes are open in the darkness of night that's surrounding her. And she walks in with everything, breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head. And the oil and ointment flows down His face and the fragrance fills the house. And Jesus tells the people, wherever the Gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, even in Greenfield, Indiana, what this woman has done will be talked about forever. Sensible onlookers fade into obscurity while the rash act of extravagance of this woman lives on. This beautiful, generous, timely act has a life beyond her. You see, the pathway to lasting honor is to honor Christ. We saw it right here yesterday. If you were here, you saw it. What what gives a family the ability to praise Jesus when a beloved family member has passed away? What gives that honor to that person? That person honored Christ. The pathway to lasting honor, if you want to be remembered long past yourself, the pathway to lasting honor is to honor Christ. She gave everything she had. And Jesus defended her. Why? Here's what He says. Because she did what she could. And that's the challenge for you and me today. This woman did what she could. What can you do? What can you do? Think of the impact and what this woman did.
Everyone who's ever known someone who wore too much perfume or cologne knows what we're talking about. There are some people, you can smell them coming before they come in the room. The fragrance is overwhelming. And I want you to think for a moment. Well, let me give you a couple examples of this, okay? First of all, uh, as a child, growing up in a pastor's home, my district superintendent was a man named David Leroy. He's actually the uncle of Brad Leroy, who pastors at Harvest Church, the other close Wesleyan church to us. And David Leroy is passed away recently. But David Leroy wore Stetson cologne. <laughs> and he wore it pretty heavily. I didn't understand it at the time, but I loved the way that man smelled. You know, as a boy, I was like, this, this smells like a man. Whoever this man is, he smells like a man. You know? <laughs> I had to figure it out to the point where I asked for some Stetson cologne of my own as a young boy. I, I wanted to smell like a man too! <laughs> the other experience that I had with this is uh, when you serve at kids camp in a boy's cabin. Okay? <laughs> the, uh, some of you know where we're going here with this. The boys think they've got to impress the girls, so they all bring with them a, about seven cans of Axe deodorant body spray, okay? And these boys think that that's what's going to win the day for the girls at camp. And they bring enough for like a can a day. And it's just, they come in from whatever activity out there in the field, hot and sweaty, and they... And those little cabins fill with the smell of eggs. You gag when you walk in, not because it smells like body odor, but because it's so full of this, <laughs> of this spray. It's, <gasps> you can't breathe in there. We had to outlaw it in our cabin. After one day, we're like, everybody turn in your axe body spray. We're taking it all from you. You can't have it anymore. Another interesting thing about smells is that smells leave a mental imprint. Some of you know a smell in your life that takes you somewhere. You smell it and immediately you're transported to your childhood. For me, Stetson Cologne is that way because of David Leroy. When I smell that, I think of that man. Okay? Some of you, there might be something that a mother or grandmother cooked or something that, that just puts you right back in that place. Now I want you to think for just a minute about Jesus here. This alabaster jar is poured over his head and we're told that the fragrance fills the room. Jesus would leave from here and in the next couple days, he'd have the Passover dinner. He'd wash his disciples' feet. If you've ever had something that powerful poured over you, you don't shake it. It goes with you. As he would catch the whiff of it from time to time. What an encouragement to the heart of Christ it must have been to be taken back to that moment where this dear woman said, I'm giving him everything I have. When the guys around him still were not getting it. As Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and they're falling asleep while he is in deep torment. That smell. And I'm sure there's frustration on Jesus' part for these disciples. But to be reminded 
of this woman who gave everything she had. As he's flogged and beaten, that smell would have been on him. As he carries the cross, as he's nailed to the cross, that smell would have lingered around him. What a wonderful gift. A lasting, impactful gift because she gave everything she had. She did what she could. What can you do for Jesus? What can you do? I'd like to invite our worship team to come. I want to pray for you. And I want to bless you and I want to encourage your hearts to ask that question. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me as we pray? Jesus, I thank you for this example that we have today of this dear woman who you praised. And now here we are, thousands of years later, still bringing up her story. She's impactful because she gave everything that she had and she did what she could do. And now, God, as we search our hearts, the questions that roll through my own are, What am I willing to give to you? How much am I willing to give to you? To what level am I willing to give to you? And have I done what I can? Jesus, I don't want to be one of the ignorant disciples who are seated on the sidelines and not grasping the level of what is happening around them. I don't want to be blind to it. So God, give me that intuition of the heart and the spirit. Open my eyes, open the open my heart to sense you and know you. And as you press that question on our hearts, have we done what we can? What can we give? Jesus, that's the true heart of a worshiper of Jesus, of you. So come move on us and stir in us as we worship together now. In your name I pray.